for them. So uh, that and the mission trip meeting, uh, I love missions, and uh, getting the gospel of the world is a, a big thing. It's a big thing, so I hope that we'll be involved in that. Well, I am thankful that we as a church get excited about working through books of the Bible and teaching and preaching through books of the Bible. And I think if you're going to be excited about something, that's a good one to be excited about, okay? Let's be excited about souls and missions and reaching people. Let's be excited about preaching God's Word verse by verse. And today we get to start Esther, the God of great reversals. And as we begin our study of Esther, I just want to start with a little bit of background. This is one of the last books of the Old Testament written. So Esther is kind of early on in the Old Testament, if you're just flipping through page by page, but I will remind you that your Bible is not arranged in chronological order. It is arranged by genre or type of literature. So Esther actually falls at the very end of the Old Testament period, about 500 years before Jesus. We don't know who the author is. There really is no internal evidence to tell us, here's who penned these words. Uh, some speculate that Mordecai, we'll meet Mordecai in, in uh, probably next week, Esther's cousin, that maybe he wrote it, but we ultimately don't know. It really doesn't matter because that we know all Scripture, including the book of Esther, comes from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and really God is the author when it's all said and done. Uh, Jews in particular love this book because this actually chronicles the start of the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated to this day, and tells you where that feast got its origins and where it came from, and we'll, we'll get to that in a few weeks. Christians, however, have quite frankly not known entirely what to do with this book over the years. For the first seven centuries of the Christian church, best we know, there were no commentaries written on the book of Esther. Uh, we treated it kind of like a cat does water. We just kind of stayed away from it and, uh, and dealt with other stuff. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, went so far as to say that this book shouldn't even be in the Bible, uh, which goes to show that the best of men are men at best, and uh, even men that God uses can be, uh, can be very wrong. So it, sh it should be in the Bible, but he didn't think so. And as we work through the book, you'll be able even to understand maybe why he would say that, because there are some dark portions of this book. There are some portions, even next week, that you almost feel like you have to put hand sanitizer on before you touch them. Uh, but nevertheless, there are lessons for our learning. You can even find some modern commentaries that will say in no uncertain terms that it just probably wouldn't be a good idea to preach through Esther verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Maybe like pick a couple texts and do some sermons, but maybe not verse by verse, phrase through phrase. So what we're going to do is turn to Esther 1, 1 and we're going to work through this verse by verse, phrase by phrase, okay? Uh, because, and we do this not because we want to, oh, I'll stick it to the commentators. Uh, we do it because we believe what the Bible says about itself, that all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that all of Scripture is profitable. What Paul wrote in Romans 14, that all of these things that were written before time, they were written for our learning so that we, through patience and, and, and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope, right? Like, we understand that as we approach Esther and we crack it open, that this is for our learning, this is profitable, this is good for us, this is, in fact, the Word of God. I'll say one more thing as we set up the series. I chose the book of Esther for two reasons. Number one, I love the big theme here that it's a God of great reversals. And just many of you right now, after the year that we've had, physically, financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, could use a reversal. And you're just not at a good spot in those areas. So some of it was that application. But the primary reason I chose this book is because it is, in fact, a different genre of literature. So in the last four or so years, I have preached through, I don't know the exact number, maybe six or seven different books of the Bible. But we have yet to cover an Old Testament narrative 
which does preach differently, and it, and it is a different approach, and, and you learn differently from a story, more or less. So a story in the Old Testament is different than an epistle in the New Testament, and both of those are different than a gospel. And so as we work through this, you'll find that even the way that I'm presenting it or we preach will be different week to week, but most weeks will look like this. Most weeks will be us reading and working through the story slowly, understanding it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and then at the end, circling back around and making applications based off the text as a whole. We'll, we'll jump into the weeds, we'll go little by little by little, and then at the end we'll zoom out and we'll get the applications that grab a hold of our heart and grab a hold of our life, okay? So that's what we're going to do today, that's what we'll do most weeks. So Esther 1, verse number 1, let's check it out together. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. So, as the curtain rises and the director begins to set the scene, this begins with the most powerful person on earth. Ahasuerus is the Persian version of his name. You probably would have heard of him by his Greek version of his name, which is Xerxes I. So, Ahasuerus, Xerxes I, same guy. I will more often than not refer to him as Xerxes just because it's easier for me to pronounce. So, but it's, a, it's the same man. Xerxes actually is the grandson of Cyrus. If you remember Cyrus, he was prophesied about. Cyrus was the first Persian Medo king that came and conquered Babylon. Babylon conquered the Jews in Jerusalem, carried the children of Israel away into exile. Years later, Cyrus comes, conquers them, actually allows many of them to go back home. Cyrus's son, Darius, who is Xerxes' dad, actually allowed them to start rebuilding, and he allowed them to, to look at the temple and to consider those things. You would find biblical counterparts to this would be maybe the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, would all fall in the same timeline. And then you have Xerxes, who's the son of Darius I, and he is portrayed in no uncertain terms, in chapter 1, verse number 1, as you step onto the scene, as an inescapable power. What it says is this man, this Persian king, he ruled from India unto Ethiopia, and that was 127 different provinces. The reason it says India to Ethiopia is because those were the boundaries, more or less, of the known world. This man ruled what was the world. We actually have a map to show you what this would look like if you applied his kingdom to, uh, to just a, a basic map. This, this shows that he ruled not everything. He wasn't in Greece yet. He still had that yet to conquer, but he ruled almost everything. And even today, I mean, the world has expanded, right? When Xerxes is a world ruler, you can say he ruled the world because there's not that many people in Detroit at that point in time, right? But even today, with, with the expanded world, if we, you said there's someone who's a political spiritual leader who's going to run and rule Egypt and Libya and Israel and Turkey and Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and Pakistan all together, you'd be like, whoa, like that, that's a lot, like that's big, right? So here is Xerxes who is presented as this man who basically is the dominant figure in the world, the world ruler, and he's inescapable. Like, there's not planes and trains and automobiles. If you were rich, maybe you got a horse. But other than that, you had your feet. And unless you live on the very, very, very outskirts of Xerxes' kingdom, you're not escaping this guy. You're not walking far enough, fast enough to get away from this man and his provinces and his rulers and his edicts and his decrees and, and what he says, you just aren't going to do it. He's an inescapable power. 
Verse number 2 says that in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace. So this is immediately a picture of this man seated, high, lifted up, on a throne. It's meant to be a godlike portrait. It's meant to, to connotate majesty, power, and him ruling and reigning like a god. Uh, he actually loved his throne so much that he created a platform, and he would put his throne on that platform, and as they went into military conquest, he didn't ride the horse, he didn't have the carriage, they just carried him around on his throne. They had people and animals that just carried this platform, was thrown around. It was like his, his favorite lazy boy or something. He just wanted to sit in it all the time. He loved his throne and that he ruled, and this throne you'll find as we move through the book of Esther is extremely significant because you don't touch Xerxes' throne, you don't go before his throne, you don't touch the carpet that is throne sits on without being invited and without bowing and without worshiping this man and if you dare do then you die his throne is extremely important those those that were under his rule thought that the edicts that came from his throne were the edicts of a god Xerxes thought of himself as a god which was not uncommon for ancient rulers the Babylonians did this. You can read about it in Daniel chapter number four. The Persians did this. The Greeks did this. The Romans did this. It's very common even in Roman days, in Jesus' day, for Caesars to say that I'm Caesar and I'm August, I'm Augustus, I'm venerable, I'm reverent, worship me, for there to be Caesar worship. And Xerxes was the man who wasn't just the political leader, he was the religious leader. He was the one that people bowed down in obeisance to. And this is the man who has arrived. This is the man who right at the beginning of the story, you're meant to put your eyes on and know clearly that there's no one in the world who has the power and the might and the authority that this man has. The nuclear codes are in his briefcase, as it were. He is the one who has it all. He gives the decrees. He is in charge. So the first actor that walks onto the stage lets you know you don't got to look any further for who's the most important person in this time in the earth. It is this man Xerxes. Archaeologists have discovered in Persepolis. Persepolis was the capital, capital where the palace was, then Shushan or Susa was kind of the alternate capital. So Persepolis was number one, Shushan was number two. Uh, the, the Persian rulers did this because they wanted good weather year-round. So they actually had two different capitals and two different palaces. They had a summer home and a winter home to make sure they could get good weather which must be nice, right? Not like I have one, one palace and all this opulence and all this stuff. I got, I got a backup palace in case my first one gets a flat tire, right? I can go there. But So you're in the backup palace here. But in Persepolis, we have found, archaeologists have found many inscriptions on, on different items that have the same inscription over and over that says this about Xerxes. Here's the inscription, quote, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king. The king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages. The king of this entire big, far-reaching earth. All right, so Xerxes calls himself the king of kings who sits on a throne. Sound familiar? All right, th this is this man's how he's being portrayed. Verse number three, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all of his provinces and his servants, the powers of Persia and Medea, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. So this man is not just portrayed as being this inescapable ruler, but now he's being described as this invincible ruler because you're told that he gathers all these people, and the people that he gathers, you're meant to hear power, power, power. You're meant to hear the princes, the governors, the rulers of the provinces, the nobles. He just doesn't gather the peasants to come unto him and to feast and to ultimately worship him. He gathers the most powerful people in the world. 
Xerxes even titled himself the leader of heroes. I'm not just the leader of men. I'm not just the leader of leaders. I am the leader of heroes. That's who he was in his own mind. Commentators say that when you invite all of these people, the rulers of these 127 provinces, and we know historically that his first two years were spent setting up the kingdom and getting everything running, so it makes sense that this is in year three, that when he invites all these people, this could be upwards of ten to 15,000 people. This, this isn't a small entourage. He's inviting uh, all the powers that be in, in the known world, ten to 15,000 people, and it says that he's going to have a feast for them, Okay. So if you're in hospitality, you're in planning, you cater weddings, maybe you, uh, you, you know, grand estate, wedding venue, or maybe you've just planned your own wedding. You know what it's like to carry off an event for a day for, you know, 10 people, 100 people, maybe 500 people. Can you imagine having a feast that you have to pull off for 10 to 15,000, and not just any people, the most powerful people in the world. Can you think about the lodging, the food, the transportation, the security, all that you would need to make this happen? And they're coming to a feast. How much does it cost them? Nada. It's all from the, from the coffers of the great King Xerxes. He is going to invite you to his feast. How long do you think this party lasted? Keep reading verse number four. This is crazy. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. All right, that's 180 days. This is a six-month party. All right, we just had Easter, okay? Some of you, how many of you raised their hands? You hosted Easter at your house. You had the family over. You did dinner, whatever. How did you feel about 10 o'clock Easter night? You were exhausted, weren't you? You were ready to take a nap for like a week because you had the people and the cooking and getting ready and Easter eggs or whatever it is. Try a six-month party. Six months, ten to 15,000 people you're going to host. This, this is crazy. This is meant to, to help you see that like this is the party to end all parties. Like I've never heard of such a thing. I've never imagined such a thing. There used to be a show that was on TV called Cribs where they would go and they would examine celebrities and rich people's houses and they dedicated an hour to go, you know, look at this opulence and the mansions that rich people have. This is Cribs for six months, okay? He, he, he can't do it in an hour. He needs six months to show you the glory of his majesty and his kingdom and his wealth and what he has. This, this, is, this is forever. And why does he do it? Does he do it because he just loves people? He just wants to be generous? Oh, you guys, you're such great rulers and great leaders. I just want to give you a feast and take care of you and pamper you. You know, you, you deserve some benefits. No, 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 no. He does it, it says very clearly, to show the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty. Those are worship words. His glory, his excellency, his majesty. Come to the palace, to the man who sits on the throne. I'm Xerxes, the king of all kings, the, the leader and the ruler of heroes. Come and see my majesty and glory and bow before me. I want to get the people from the nations of the earth, from all these 127 provinces. I want to bring all the people from the nations before me to worship me on my throne. Once again, sound familiar at all? This is a God complex. This is this man wanting worship. Now, I do want to stop for just a moment and, and just recognize ourselves in this story. Because if you're not careful, you're like, man, this guy is big and rich and powerful and, you know, that has nothing to do with me. But there is, if you're honest, there is something in us that, that we have a little Xerxes in all of us. That we want to be king and we want the glory. 
It is, it is extremely pervasive, especially in American culture, although it's less so in Western PA than many other parts of the country in my experience. But nevertheless, it's still here where people want glory for themselves. <clears throat> so I'll spend my money in such a way so that I get the car that people look at like, whoa, that's awesome. You didn't, you didn't need rims that big, but man, they sure look good. You didn't need to jack it up that much, but it sure looks great. So when I drive around, <clears throat> everybody looks at me, everybody thinks highly of me, everybody wants to give me glory based on what I drive, or, or the house that I get, or how I expand my house, or, what I buy, or the clothing that I wear, right? Why? I, I'll do this, I'll spend my money on this, I'll get all these trappings so that people will look and exalt, and they'll think more highly of me. Like, we do this stuff. We do this Xerxes stuff. Where we want to be king of our own hearts, we want to be king of our own lives, we, we want to rob the glory for ourselves, but ultimately Christians believe that there is one who not just gets most of the glory, but there is one who gets all of the kingdom and the glory and the power forever, amen, right? We believe that there's one who gets all the glory and the one who has all the power and one who deserves all of the worship and he rules and reigns and his name is Jesus, Right? So this is meant to draw us in and to see this man who has this God complex, and it's not right, but we too should not have this. There's something about this party you have to know up front. We'll read it in just a minute, verse number 8. But you need to know up front that there was a drinking rule at the party for six months. And the drinking rule was, there are no rules. That was the rule. Drink as much as you want, let it flow, tip them back, have fun, just, just drink as much as you want. So when you are introduced to this party, start thinking like, Mardi Gras meets frat party meets open bar stuff, okay? This is, you're meant to see like this is, and it's going to get like nasty, and you're going to see that it doesn't go well because of all this, but this is what it is. This, this, is, this is the party where they're just going to let loose, and they're going to have a good time for a long time. Verse number five, when these days were expired, so the 180 days are over, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto the great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So 16 months, 10, 15,000 people come, let's party it up, let's have a great time. Now at the end, we're going to open it up for a week to the regular folk. Okay, so we've had janitors and cooks and servants and all these people making sure that it all happened in the hospitality business. So let's open it up for a week and let's have great and small. You stick around, let's keep this bad boy going for a little while longer, let's get all them roped in here, and let's just have a bigger party. He says, I'm King Xerxes, so come see, see my palace, see me, be in honor of this, come to the court of the garden of the king's palace, don't just be the peasants down at the bottom of the hill, come up, see it, I'll, I'll, have, a, I'll have a party for you, verse 6. Then it begins to describe this palace, and it's meant to, to make your jaw drop, to make your eyes pop. There were white, green, blue hangings, or you could even say curtains, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. So we got all these curtains, and they're made of these fabrics, and it, and it goes out of its way to say that they're, they're fine, they're green, they're purple, they're blue, colors that are cup to come by, colors that were expensive. You remember Lydia in the New Testament, the seller of purple, uh, very, very tough to make that, right? It's what you would wear to, to indicate you had money. Nowadays, we can make all the colors and we just dye it, whatever. It's easy. So we put tags on our stuff to make sure that people know it's expensive. But in this day, it was just the color. That's all you needed was the color to know that it was expensive, that it, that it was money. And so this is what it is. It's, it's money. It's the linen fastened with, with silver to these, to these pillars of marble, right? Ceiling up, floor down. We should separate those somehow. Let's do pillars of marble. Let's, let's put those in there. It says there were beds of gold and silver, 
Beds being, they laid on a bed of gold. That doesn't seem very comfortable. Could be bed where they slept, honestly. Uh, but also, you could just think the resting place. Probably more appropriately, you would think couches. Right? If you think your leather couch is nice, try gold and silver. Not color. Gold. Gold. Like gold and silver. Right? And not a few of them. Right? Is a big palace or a small palace? A big palace. Right? You can host 10, 15,000 people in this, in this bad boy. Right? You need a little bit of seating or a lot of seating? You need a lot of seating, right? Ah, man, we, we only got gold couches for like 10,000. We got to go to flea market and get some silver ones for another five, right? Like this is, this is nuts. You're meant to read this and say, holy smokes, that's incredible. It says, upon pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. All right, your jaw should hit the floor. Like they made the floors of precious stones, right? Like Nemecolon has nothing on this place. This is, this is incredible. Upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble, and then it says this, verse 7, they gave them drink and vessels of gold, and parenthetical, the vessels being diverse one from another, okay? So this is getting nuts now. Let's bring them all in. We need to give them a party favor, you know? What should we give them? Like, it's a wedding, you get the bubbles, and you, you know, a sparkler, you wave it, it's your little party favor or something. Let's give them a party favor. I don't know. Let's give them some gold goblets. And don't, let's, let's not just run these off the press one after the other after the other. Let's custom make each one of these bad boys, right? Let's, let's, let's give them some gold goblets. Let's drink from that. I mean, just, just imagine this. It says at the end of verse number 7, they gave them the drink in these vessels of gold, and it was royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. So rivers of wine flowing from the king, right? So just pause, just pause and imagine Six-month party, the most powerful people in the world, open bar the whole time. I don't know if you've ever been to a party with an open bar. I haven't been to many weddings with an open bar, but I've been to a couple, okay? It doesn't take six months for things to get off the rocker. It takes about 60 minutes, right? If you've ever been to, if you're, if you're contemplating, as some of you are engaged or whatever, don't do open bar at the wedding. It's not a good idea. The bride is crying, the groomsmen are fighting, the cousin is lost in the woods somewhere. Like, it, do, it doesn't go well. It doesn't take very long for people to start acting like Neanderthals and grunting and hitting each other. Like, it just, it's not a good idea. This is that for six months, okay? Verse number eight makes it very clear. The drinking was according to the law, none did compel. So we're talking about drinking the king's royal wine. Okay, this isn't Welch's. It's according to the law, none did compel. You say, they didn't make them drink? That's weird. Well, keep reading. For so the king had appointed all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So the reason it says this is because in those days, you took your cue from the king. When you went to a party, if, if he stood, you stood. If he sat, you sat. You didn't put the fork to the chicken until he put the fork to the chicken. You didn't drink unless he drank. You took your cues from the king. But this party is different. Guys, do what you want, okay? And he's, King Xerxes is going to tip a few back. We're going to see that in a minute. But it, don't follow me. Do follow me. Don't matter. Just do what you want. The rule is no rules. The rule is whatever pleases you, whatever feels good to you, however you want to live this party up, you just go ahead and do your thing. No inhibitions, no restrictions, nothing holding you back. Just go for it, okay? So it's tough, it's tough to imagine the debauchery that would be this party, that would be what's happening in this moment. We're told in verse number 9 there was a separate party. 
that Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So we will talk about these women in this house next week. But what this is saying is that while all the men are together, and it's very likely that there are women present in this party as well, and there's a lot of debauchery there. What it's saying is that the king's women, Ahasuerus had Queen Vashti, but then he also had a harem, and he had a whole bunch of other women, that those women were off limits. Sit on my gold couches? Cool. Have my gold goblet? Great. Drink my wine? Fantastic. See my stuff? Great. My women? No. Don't touch my women. They're staying away. You can have your own women. You can do whatever you want there. But these are mine, and they are staying separate. This, this, they are not for you. Verse number 10. On the seventh day, this is the very end. This, there was 180 days. Then there's the extra seven days. So now it's the last day of the party. And was it planned to be the last day of the party, or did the party just end because of this? We're not entirely sure. But here it is on the last day of the party, nevertheless. When the heart of the king was merry with wine. Okay, that's, that's a great way of saying He's had one too many. He is about to make some decisions with impaired judgment, okay? He commanded, and if you're looking for names for your grandchildren or something, don't use this verse, but here they are. Me human, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king. So the chamberlains are the eunuchs. Next week, we'll look at how he mistreats women massively, but he also mistreats men, and you best not lose sight of that. These are the men that are the eunuchs, which means he has physically altered them so that they can't take advantage of his women. So women aren't for the guys, but these guys, I'll send them over there. I, I, I ain't got no worries. I took care of that. Spayed and neutered. Done. So he sends them, verse 11, to, pre, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the royal crown, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. So more or less, I don't mean to be crass, but he basically is like, guys, go get my smoking hot wife, bring her over here, is what he says. And not just bring her over here, I want to show her off. So, uh, bros, when you go get her, make sure she ain't wearing her Snuggie, okay? Uh, royal crown, let's make sure that she looks pretty and she's dolled up, because the whole point of this is appearances. The whole point of this is not because he wanted to have a chit-chat, the point of this is because he wanted to showcase her, to showcase her beauty. There, there are some commentaries that speculate on what she wore, what she didn't wore, was, where, was, it, was it just the crown, was it other stuff. We don't know, but we do know that the goal was not to, to you know, have her covered in a shower curtain. We know that much. We do know that this is nasty, okay? This is the king in a drunken state inviting other drunken men to ogle his wife. That's not good, okay? I don't know if you're looking for marriage tips, but I wouldn't recommend that one. This, this is messed up. This is, I've shown you all my possessions over the last six months, and you've seen my wealth, and you've seen my splendor, and you've seen my majesty. Now let me show you one more thing. And, and I don't, I'm not overstating it. I'm actually watering it down if I say it this way. I know there are some that aren't adults in the room, so I'll, I'll try to make it simple, but it, it is what it is. The text says what it says. It, it is basically, let me just show you my sex object. And we'll see next week that, that Vashti is the queen, but that's, this is all she is. Let, let me bring her over here. Verse number 12. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. 
So this must have been an awkward moment, okay? <laughs> For these seven guys to come back empty-handed with no queen, no crown, and to approach Xerxes, the leader of heroes, on his throne. Who you, I mean, you don't even approach him without an invite or he kills you. Like, to approach this man and say, we couldn't deliver what you asked for. She's not coming. Like, we tried. Like, can you imagine how much they're goading or trying to get her, like, for our sakes. Like, please, he's going to kill us. Like, please. And she, no, I ain't coming. Now, we don't know if this was Vashti saying enough is enough. I'm not putting up with, with this man and his abuse. And this is, you know, this is meant to lead a feminist movement or something. Maybe she was drunk herself. And she's like, I'm not coming. I mean, we don't know. We don't know wh- how or why. We just know that she's, she's like, uh-uh. I am not, I'm not coming over there. So this, this moment starts to get crazy pretty fast. I would imagine if they had Twitter that, you know, hashtag Vashti said no is trending right now. And people are like, this is the talk of the town. And you're see in a minute that, that that in fact is the case. And it says the king's reaction to this is he was very wroth and his anger burned in him. So he's angry. All right, now let's, let's just, just pause for a moment, okay. Here is a man with a big head, a temper, and a drinking problem, right? I got a big old ego, I got an anger, and I got a thirst for alcohol. Any one of those three on their own are wildly dangerous and can destroy you fast. Put those three together, this is a recipe for disaster. This is a recipe for this man to do and say some stuff that he probably is going to regret the next day or the week after. We'll find next week that for sure, three years later, he regretted it. That here is a man who is, who is going to put this combination together. And the point of Esther chapter number one is not to be a lecture on, on the dangers and perils of alcohol, but I do at least think it's worth noting that all those are dangerous and alcohol, even on its own, is, is extremely dangerous. You, you, you put those things together, some of you guys and gals, it's not just guys, but, but both. You already have an ego, you already have a temper problem, you, you want to throw some liquor on top of that, that's not good. That does not go well. He's going to end up wifeless because of this. Some of you have already lived through the pain of that and you've ended up husbandless or wifeless or you don't see the kids anymore because you've, you've been there, you've done this. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. In my own personal family, on, on both sides, my side and my wife's side, go back two generations and there's a lot of nasty that is associated with men who have an ego and have a temper and love alcohol on both of our sides. My wife's side is even a little bit worse than mine. Her grandmother was murdered by her husband, her, her step-grandfather, because he was, he was a big man who had an anger problem and he loved to drink. And he murdered her and he committed suicide himself. So this can get, this, it's not a new thing that this happens. This, this can get bad, this can get rough real fast. So avoid it, avoid it. But here's what the king does. Verse number 13, the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew the law and judgment. And the next unto him was, and once again, don't use these names, but uh, Karshina, there's, I like Sheena, she, there's a Sheena in here, I like Sheena, but Karshina, eh. Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, ever heard of Tarshish the city, right? It's like naming your kid Austin, like they named him Tarshish. Merez, Marcina, Mimucan, 
I probably shouldn't say this, but if you're of my generation, I always, I can't help it. When I read that word, I just think of Street Fighter and Arukin. I just say, Mamukin, that's what I think of. But nevertheless, I digress. The seven princes of Persia, Amida. I'll try not to say Mamukin. I'll try to say, maybe you can. Which saw the king's face, which sat in the first kingdom. So what this is saying is there are seven guys who are his, his first line of defense, his most trusted counselors. They are the ones that rule the most. And these seven guys have access to him. They see the king's face. They're first in the kingdom, okay? So what you'll find, though, is that these seven are not so much the magnificent seven. It's going to end up being more like Xerxes and the seven dwarfs when it's all said and done. Verse number 15. What shall we do unto Queen Vashti according to the law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king by the chamberlain? So once again, just a dumb question. When you're looking how to, how to lead your family and what you should do for your wife or for your husband, you're looking to figure out what should I do for your spouse, to ask what does the law permit is always a bad place to go, okay? And I, I know that some of you have lived there, some of you may be there right now, on, well, what does the law permit? Can I divorce them? Can I not? Can, you know, how far can I go with this? That's always, a, that's always a bad place to run your marriage just by what the, what the laws say or if it's permissible to divorce somebody or get rid of somebody or not. But nevertheless, it's where the drunk guy is. Many can't answer before the kings and the princes. Vashti the queen, she hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes. And to all the people that are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So King, she hasn't just offended you. She has offended all of us. And not just offended all of us. Even the people that are not here right now, they don't even know what's going on. All the people of all the land, all over the world, she's offended everybody. This is is a global travesty. That's what he says. He's stroking his ego, right? Verse number 17. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women. This gets hilarious. And it becomes pretty obvious that these guys, are, they're probably a little inebriated themselves. Because their, their, their logic, what they, what they give as advice is just like, it's, it's in a whole other world. But it's going to come abroad to all the women so that they shall despise their, their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported that King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. So king, we're fearful that everyone's going to find out about this. And here's what's going to happen when they do. Verse 18 Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Medea say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. So more or less, king, this is going to be the no heard round the world. When ladies hear about this, they are just going to follow Vashti's example. There's going to be guys all over your empire that are like, give me some lemonade. And they're going to be like, get your own lemonade. And that is a, that's a national security problem, king. This is the big deal. This, this, is, this has global ramifications that she came and told you no, because everybody's just going to take their cues from, from Vashti from now on. Like, this, this is amazing. It, it's completely inflated. Verse 19. So if it please the king, let there go out a royal command from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians, and let it be not altered. Ever heard of the law of the Medes and the Persians? That, what that means is you can't change it at all. This, this was their rule. If you do a, a law according to the, the Medes and the Persians, then you, you can't revoke it. Even the king, the king can do whatever he wants, but he can't revoke one of those. Can't take it back. And this law, it'll have bearing as we get more into the story, and we're introduced to Mordecai later on. So here's what you should declare. That Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. So king, she can't come no more. She said no, we said no. You can't come. And depose her. 
Get a new queen. Be done with her. Verse 20, when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both great and small. So not just a rule for Vashti. Let's make sure the whole world knows about this. And let's put in there, you know what? Rule of the Medes and Persians now, wives, obey your husbands, and, and you have to do whatever they say. That's, that's, that's the law. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mimucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Now let's stop and start to apply this little by little. First of all, what you're introduced to here in the back half of this chapter is the first of the great reversals of Esther. The first 11 verses of Esther chapter 1, you're meant to be introduced to this man who is high, lifted up, powerful, on his throne, rules the world, is the top dog, has arrived, is the man. You're meant to have your jaw hit the floor. You're meant to, to just kind of gape and wonder. You're meant to see his power and majesty. But the last 11 verses of Esther chapter 1 are meant to make you laugh at this man. And you're meant to say this this ego and this power and this authority that this man had, all of a sudden it starts to seem paper thin because here is the guy, the inescapable ruler who rules 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, but he can't even control his wife, right? Like you're meant to stop and laugh at that and say that's ironic. Here's the, here's the big dog who's trying to flex his muscles for everybody and show how great he is. He spends 187 days saying, come, let me impress you for over six months and let me spend an enormous amount of the taxpayer's money to do this. For 187 days, let me impress you. And what the people are going to walk away from with the banquet is remembering that Vashti said no, right? All of this let me impress you and let me inflate myself and my majesty and my excellence all because his queen says no after six months is going to come crashing down. And as this scene comes to a close and she refuses his command, you're meant just to chuckle and to say like what you're presented with, with this power and this big dog up front, really is, is it's not what it seemed. You're also meant to laugh at the command and at least three levels. Because Mimucan is like, king, yo, if we don't do something, everybody's going to hear about this. And then they're going to, like, start taking their cues from Vashti. So here's what we should do. We should tell them all about it. We should publish the decree and put it in all the lands and all the languages and make sure everybody hears about it and then add on at the end, but you have to obey, right? Like, we're scared everyone will hear about it, so let's make sure everybody hears about it. That's dumb. Right? That, that's illogical. You also have the punishment. Vashti said, no, I'm not coming. So, king, let's punish her. Let's tell her she can't come. Right? That's what they do. This is like me with, with, my, with, you know, one of my sons or one of my kids. They disobey. I'm like, hey, Cruz, you can't disobey dad. And there's a punishment for disobeying. The punishment is you can't obey anymore. Right? You would say you're an idiot. Like, that makes no sense at all. But this is what they come up with. This is the best they had to offer. And then you find that they think that they can legislate how a wife responds to her husband. And they try to make these relationships between spouses all of a law, 
Like somehow a piece of paper or a decree from a king is going to increase her respect and somehow it's going to make her think more highly of him, which I will say, for whatever it's worth, the Christian people fall into this trap sometimes. That, well, you know, the Bible has some things to say about marriage. It says that the husband's the leader and, and it says that, that he should love. And, that, and here's what it says. And they think because it says it that somehow that's just going to automatically make it happen in somebody's heart. Instead of saying, you know what, maybe I'll live a life as a man that's respectable. Maybe I'll start there. Maybe I'll do the right thing and not show my wife off so people can ogle her all the time. That's what, that's what you should take away is let me change my behavior. Let me be respectable. Let me be lovable. Let me do my part. Let me stop. Instead of, well, here's what it says, so you better do your, like, that's not how relationships work. I, if you sign a piece of paper for, for your marriage license, fine. But I hope you know that the marriage license is far more than a piece of paper and a law that, that, that America has made up. It's, it's supposed to be a lot more than that. It's supposed to be a covenant relationship. It's supposed to be a relationship between people. But here they think that somehow they can legislate people's relationships between themselves. And so you're meant to come to the end of the chapter and say, you, you start with such power and majesty and wanting to see the world and all that the world has to offer. But by the end of the chapter, you're meant to laugh at it and say what the world has to offer is a joke. What they're presenting and how they act and when push comes to shove, the actual thinking just, it does not make sense. We're, I would even, I'd go so far as to apply this to our own day and age. We, we have in our own country a constitution and laws and new laws coming. And there, there are every once in a while, and even including right now, I don't know how many of you are following the, the Equality Act that is going through Congress. I hope that you will call your congressman or congresswoman and that you'll actually talk to them about this. Uh, but, but you have that going through Congress. I read an article yesterday that was the Equality Act is meant to protect religious freedoms, which is, which is about the equivalent of Mimucan saying, you know what? She didn't come, so let's make a law that, that she can't come anymore. It's dumb. And, and in relation to religious freedoms, it absolutely will obliterate religious freedoms and will set, I'm telling you right now, if that law passes, that our church and many others will be, will be in the crosshairs of persecution and fines because we refuse to. If, if you're new and this is a prize, sorry, but here it is, okay? If we are faced with a choice of hiring someone and we can't say, no, I will not hire you, because you're transgender or because you're a homosexual, then we're just going to get fined. We're just, now, the law is going to say that if it goes through Congress. I don't know if it will or not. I don't know. And God's bigger than all that. If it does, then I'll trust in his providence. But if it goes through, that law, we're, we're just going to say it is what it is, but it's going to set us up to where we're going to be fined or I don't know if jail will come or what will happen eventually. But what is being portrayed as something that will help religious organizations when at its core, it will fundamentally gut religious organizations for taking a stand on truths that the Word of God have taken a stand on for, for centuries now. It's just what it is. And so we, we, we even are meant to say, look, our government's no joke, and government powers are of God. I don't say this to say we should belittle the government, because the Bible says that the government powers are ordained of God, and, and you'll even find that the, the nasty that Xerxes does, God is going to use that nasty for his glory, and he's going to use it to save his people. So we trust in the providence of God through all this, but we even understand powerful governments or powerful rulers or people that hold sway and authority over our lives, that when push comes to shove and you really just stop and pause and think about it for a minute, there's a lot that's laughable. 
There's a lot that's nonsensical. There's a lot that we're not meant to be enamored with the empire of the world or the systems of the world. We're not meant to, to think that they are what they seem to be at first glance, but we're meant to, to peek behind the curtain and say, you know what, this isn't all it's cracked up to be, right? So here you're left, number one, supposed, you're supposed to be laughing at this powerful man and at his kingdom. But secondly, you're supposed to understand from this text that pursuing the things of the world never satisfies. This story makes it radically clear, radically, that the things of the world are not big enough to satisfy us. Okay? You think I'm joking? He threw a 187-day party. Some of you lived party life before. Probably never did a 187-day binger. 187 days. And when it's all said and done, he ain't even happy. Right? Here he is after all of the opulence and all of the wealth and all of the gold goblets and all of the wine and all of the food and all of this, all of these extravagant possessions. Here he is with the most important people in the world, and he's not satisfied. If you, do you think for a minute that Xerxes was not satisfied by all that he had, all of his wealth and all of his women and all of his power and, and all of the drinking and all of the partying, but somehow you are going to be satisfied by the same things? You're crazy. This is a lesson to say, if it didn't satisfy this guy who had it all and some, then there is no chance that it's possibly going to satisfy you. Some of you have, some of you have been here. You've lived through this. And, and I, if you've been here and you've learned it hasn't satisfied, I hope that you'll share it with other Christians. I hope that you'll share it with, with, your, with your kids even in an appropriate manner, but that you'll share with them, hey, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I've been in the party life, and I, you know, I've, I've been there. I woke up two states away wearing a shower curtain, not knowing what was going on with a new tattoo, and, and, and that just doesn't work. I, ho- I hope that in your group even you'll share like, hey, that stuff doesn't satisfy because this story is meant to tell us that it's not going to. That, whatever, that relationship you're pursuing, that promotion and the money that you're pursuing, the upgrades to your home or your car or your wardrobe, having your, even your kids, good things like your kids, fulfill your life. It's not going to work. It's, you're not going to be content if you, oh, then I, once I get my house, I'll be content. Once I get to a life stage where I don't have any more kids and I'm an empty nester, then I'll be content. Well, once I have kids, because I want kids, once I have kids, then I'll be content. You're chasing the wrong stuff. Wrong stuff. Even if it's good stuff like family or providing for, for your family or, or even being generous or something, even the good stuff, if, if you're chasing that instead of Jesus, you're going to find it's just not enough. It won't satisfy you. History tells us, and we'll look at this once again next week a little bit, that King Xerxes is having this party to impress all of his rulers because he's about to ask them to go on a military campaign to take over Greece. And he will, they will, in fact, do that. When we pick up chapter 2, chapter 2 will be after that military campaign. Which teaches you that the man had 127 provinces, but he wanted more. Ethiopia to India didn't satisfy this guy. Whatever power grab you're after, whatever you're trying to use to satisfy yourself or to somehow make you feel full inside, it's not going to work unless you go Jesus. This is actually why Jesus 
tells us in no uncertain terms all through his ministry that he is the bread of life, right? Take of me, and I won't go corrupt. I won't go stale on you. I am, I am living water. That's what he tells the woman at the well, right? You, you've tried five husbands. You've tried this life. You've tried different religions, woman at the well. But come taste of me, right? I will satisfy your thirst. You'll never thirst again. You'll actually find satisfaction in me. Don't run to the empty wells. Don't run to people's approval. Even if it's mom and dad's approval. You probably do want mom and dad's approval. That's a normal thing. But if that's controlling your life, that's an empty well. If, if you're trying to pursue money, you tell me. Did the new toy satisfy you? And if so, for how long? Five seconds? Five minutes? Five days maybe? Not long. If you're trying to pursue the relationships or the power plays or the sex, it's just it's not going to work. It's not going to work. I love what one author said. He said that every heart contains a God-induced thirst for which, only, for which the only adequate quenching is the water of life provided by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's the truth. So if you're, if you're trying to chase stuff for satisfaction other than Jesus, let me just implore you, learn a lesson from this man. Don't. Stop. Thirdly and lastly, we certainly learn, and the hints of this are all through the text, that Jesus is just a better king. We see in this that here's Xerxes, this king with majesty. But the good news is there's another king. This isn't the only story in the Bible. This is part of the grand storyline of the Bible. And all of this leads to another king. All of this leads to the actual king of things. Xerxes said he was king of kings, but we know that title is reserved for one, and that's Jesus, right? We see Xerxes high in Shushan, in the palace, lifted up on a throne, get the worlds around me to come and worship me and see my excellency and see my majesty. But that all points us to the one who actually has a throne that's not in Shushan, but a throne in heaven. The one who actually will, will gather all the people of the earth, not just part of them, not, not without Greece, but all the kindreds, all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues will be before him and will worship him and will bow and will give him reverence and honor and majesty. We're meant to see that Yes, Xerxes is the son of Darius, and Darius was a great guy, but I ain't nothing like being the son of God. There's, there's no comparison between the two. And yes, Xerxes has, has wealth, but he uses his wealth, and he uses his power to abuse people and to dominate women and to put them in, in positions they should never be in. But Jesus is the one who takes his power, and he takes his wealth, and he humbles himself, and he actually gets off his throne. He comes and he serves, and he says, let me use my position, let me use my power to help you and to give to you and to be a king that's worth worshiping. Jesus is the one who, who didn't just sit on a throne in the heaven and the earth, but he makes the heavens and the earth, right? This is meant to show you that although Xerxes' kingdom was great and he had many subjects and many nations and he had his throne and he had it all going on, that it's nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus has. He threw an enormous banquet. He did. He threw an enormous banquet. But you, if you think that compares to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the banquet that God has for us that's awaiting us, if, you, if there's anything in here that seems appetizing or tasty or good, let me tell you right now, it, it don't hold a candle to what's awaiting us one day. It will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is meant to show us Jesus and that Jesus is better. Because Xerxes is a man who said, I'm the king of kings, come worship me. And then he died and he gave a report to the king of kings, right? That's what happened. And now 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later, ain't nobody worshiping Xerxes. Nobody's doing it. But 2,000 years after Jesus, guess what billions are doing? We're worshiping Jesus, right? 
We sang this. I want to end with this. We sang this, and you didn't realize that the song service was setting all this up today. And I didn't either until I came to church and I realized it. But what, what did we sing this morning? Our second song was, His Name is Wonderful, right? His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. He is the mighty king, master of everything. Xerxes the Lord. Nobody said that. Nobody saying that. Everybody said, Jesus my Lord, right? That's what we sang thousands of years later. The next song said that uh, you're my friend and you are my brother even though you are a king. He is the mighty king, the master of everything, but you're also my friend and you're my brother. Yes, you're my king, but you're my friend and you're my brother. And I want you more than gold or silver because only you can satisfy, right? We sang Esther 1 today. I don't know if you realized it, and I don't know if your heart was in tune with it when you sang it today. But what we said is Jesus is the better king and the better king who's also my brother. And he satisfies me like nothing else can. So as we leave Esther chapter 1, I hope, I hope, I hope that this week you can, you can say, if these people were willing to pull out all the stops and have all the extravagance and have all the worship and all the banquet and all the feast and all the money to give some sort of majesty to this demonic, false, decrepit little king named Xerxes compared to God, then I hope that we as the people of God that are part of the kingdom of God and the church of God can move through this week saying, you know what, we're going to give him better. We're, we're, if Xerxes deserves some sort of allegiance, then man, this week I'm giving Jesus my allegiance and I'm giving him my joy and I'm giving him my worship. And I, I'm, I'm going to worship him with all that I got. And my theme for this week is just going to be, Jesus, you're the king of kings. Everybody tries to take it from you, and they have their own little God complex, but not me, Jesus. I understand you are the King of kings, and I worship you. Bow your heads and pray with me for a minute. Father, we thank you just for the truth of Esther chapter number one, and oh, how good it is, oh, how sweet it is. Jesus, we stop and we thank you for being the one who satisfies, for being the one who gives us rest for our souls for being the one who you leave us content because we were made for you. We were made for a relationship with you. Thank you for being so good, for being the bread of life, for being the water of life. Jesus, we thank you, and right now we lift you up and we tell you that you are the King of kings. You are. That we do give you our worship. We do give you our allegiance more than we give it to our country or our families or to ourselves even. We give it to you and we tell you that you're on your throne, that you made it all, that you're the powerful one. And Jesus, we, we, we wait and we anticipate what you prepared for us. We know that the new Jerusalem is going to make Shushan look like a joke. We know that the feast you prepared for us is going to make this look like a pauper's dinner. Jesus, we we, we just tell you we have the hope in us that we're eagerly awaiting this and that we praise your name for being so good. You're the king of kings. You are the mighty king, master of everything. Thank you for being our Lord, our God, our king, but also our brother and our friend. Thank you for getting off of your throne. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for serving us. We're not using your power and authority and wealth to, to beat us up and to control us, but Lord, to serve us. We're not worthy of it, but we praise your name for it. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name. I want you to spend just a minute with your heads bowed and eyes closed just in a spirit of prayer this morning. And I want you to stop if you're a Christian and first of all, praise Jesus. Praise him for being your king. I hope that as we work through this that your heart is just bubbling up. I, I hope that there's something in you that just 
wants to give him majesty and glory and honor and wants to worship him today, this week. I hope that you'll look at your life and say, am I, try, am I trying to outsource my satisfaction to something other than Jesus? And if so, go back to him and stop, because it's a fool's errand. Would you, would you just talk to him and do some business with him? But if you don't know Jesus, and by don't know Jesus, I don't mean, I'm not asking if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian. I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. What I mean by that is that, is Jesus your Lord or not? Like, is he in control? Is he the one that you've surrendered to? Have you put your faith and trust in him that he actually died for your sins to take away your sins and give you forgiveness? That he actually rose from the dead bodily, physically, in power? And if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you've been trying to have your heart satisfied by all the things of the world, let today be your day. Turn to him. The Bible says the way that you do that is that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, and you call upon his name and he'll save you. Meaning you just say, Jesus, you're in charge, you're Lord. That's my decision today. And Jesus, not only that, I do believe that you died and rose for me. And Jesus, I call upon your name. I'm, I'm praying to you right now. I'm calling to you and I'm saying, please save me. And you can do that right now. Just in, in the quietness of this moment, just in your heart between you and God, you can call out to him right now and you can do that right now. If you never have, I want to lead you in a prayer. I'd invite you to do this right, right here, right now, to call out to Jesus and say something like this. Jesus, today you're in charge. And not just today, for the rest of my life. I'm putting you on the throne of my heart, and I'm saying you're King of Kings, you're the Lord, you're in charge. And Jesus, I believe that you actually paid for my sins and died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead, and Jesus, I'm asking you to save me. Please come into my life and save me from my sins. I'm trusting in you, not in myself and not in other gods. I'm trusting in only you. Friend, if you will pray that, it doesn't have to be those exact words, but if you'll pray something like that and you'll ask him to come and to save you, he says and he promises, the King of Kings says he'll come and he'll save you. He absolutely will. Lord, one more time, we come to you with thanksgiving, just telling you that you're good, that you're awesome, that you have the excellency and the majesty, and we just, we just want to recognize it and worship you with all that we have. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray and we praise. We're going to do a couple things this morning to end. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of overtime. We're going to sing this song. Uh, after this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite, I'm going to slip back to baptize. We're going to end with a baptism. Uh, but we have a missionary here from Medical Missions, uh, David Stamp. He's going to come and actually uh, tell a little bit about what he does for maybe two minutes, three minutes. And, uh, and many of you know Bradley Edmondson and Medical Missions, and, and we've partnered with them, and, and we help them a lot. But he's one of the, one of the team members, so I wanted him to share his particular, uh, what he's doing. He'll be in the lobby today if you want to see him. But we're going to end just with, with those three things. We're going to sing, uh, we're going to hear him, and then we're going to baptize, and we're going to be done this morning. So, Dom, you start, and you lead us. I have decided.